California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. What's going on? Everyone's still in quarantine for another 30 days, as it's been told to us that, uh, yep, we're here till April 30th. And I doubt, uh, especially here in California, it's one of the hotspot states. I don't think we'll be getting out anytime soon. I'd like to think that by April 30th, we'll kind of figure this out and get past it. Um, but until then, I'll be here recording, letting you know the news. Uh, a couple things to get to today. I want to focus exclusively on California today. That's sort of where the show is kind of evolving that way. is becoming more of a California news politics show. Just because there's so much stuff to cover right now. I know you're bombarded with what's going on in the national news. Uh, that it's probably better just to focus on what exactly is going on here in California. Uh, with that, let's start with our out-of-the-gate monologue and get going. There's no doubt in my mind that this crisis is going to pick winners and losers. It will forever change the political, societal, and economic landscape coming out of this, locally, nationally, and internationally. This crisis has put every level of government and every business to the test. It is pushing individuals to reevaluate their lives, their finances, and their views on the world they live in. An already tumultuous populace is now staring at each other wondering what is going to happen. There's blame all around, from President Trump to China. The finger-pointing has already begun and is likely will not stop for a long time. But out of this crisis, some nations will handle this well and some won't. They will be ravaged by the outcome of this crisis, pushed to the brink of collapse. The parallels between this and the fall of World War II continue to grow. Everyone's economy has been hurt by this and it will be yet to be seen who comes out of this, the economic superpower. China has already been in trouble before this and no amount of quote under reporting will save face or save their economy when this is all over. There will certainly be a backlash against China for this. Supply chains and manufacturing may be eliminated. They will lose factories and their people will continue to suffer in poverty. European nations will fare not much better. Their socialized medicine has already shown its flaws and its weaknesses, and will it be enough to wake them up to the idea of privatized healthcare in their countries? The U.S., I maintain, will still come out stronger than most countries. Sure, we will have our bruises to show for it. How many of the newly unemployed will go back to work? There really is no telling, but with the whole world licking its wounds from this, any economy that comes out of this half-competent will be the world economic leader, and that will be the United States of America. There will be winners and losers between our political parties. Old guard politicians like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have shown they are not up to the task of handling such a crisis. Pelosi has turned this into a partisan fight, no surprise. An impeachment part due, if you will. Biden is barely coherent. The more people are tuned in to see these politicians, the more they will see them for who they really are. Crusty old establishment politicians who should have been put out to pasture a long time ago. Making this a political fight right now is a bad move for Democrats like Pelosi. And it's a sad state of affairs when one of your most calm and rational members of your party is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We've also seen the rise of two Democrat governors during this, Governor Newsom and Governor Cuomo. While not perfect, they've acted like adults in the room, saying the administration has been nothing but helpful. 
They have shown that you can be a strong leader who gets things done without the political bickering, so much so that the Democratic voters are already clamoring for Cuomo to ride in and save them from a disastrous Biden run. But it's also seen the fall of another Democratic governor, Governor Whitmer of Michigan, a rising star who played the victim card just like the mayor of San Juan and was called out for it. Then her quick reversal on the use of the drug hydroxychloroquine, one day banning its use to four days later begging the federal government to send as much as possible. The media will also face a reckoning. Channels like CNN shut, shout down anyone in their network for giving the administration any sort of compliment. Dana Bash was the first to be dragged through the mud for saying that President Trump was the leader we need right now. Even Jim Acosta, who said that the president sounded like sounded great in a press conference the other day, is being bombarded. And self-proclaimed journals like Rachel Maddow put their foot in their mouth when they say there would be no naval hospital ship in New York in a week, and there was one a week later. Forget the nationwide blackout of hydroxychloroquine and how successful it's been simply because President Trump touted it might be an effective drug to combat the coronavirus. People are looking for strong leaders right now, not people to point fingers. In this unprecedented time, people are looking to those who are actually getting things done. They're looking for answers and facts and not political fights. They're looking to their country to help any way they can. This crisis will pick the winners and losers for years to come. And I bet anyone who has been watching can already pick them for themselves too. Uh, so as you can see, there's a lot of pointing fingers going back and forth. Everyone's kind of figuring out what's going on and everyone's just clamoring for any new news any day. Uh, it kind of reminds me of back when I was in uh, the East Coast around Hurricane Sandy time. and People were just kind of looking for any sort of information, anything they could get because they were in this kind of frozen state of not being able to do what they wanted to do, um, not being able to enjoy the freedoms and liberties that they had before this. Um, so any news seems to be news that people are holding on to. So while Gavin Newsom has been doing a, I would, I, I've said a decent job and surprisingly decent job because he hasn't really turned this into much of a political fight and he hasn't really turned this into something that um, he can, he, he, he can use it as a podium to jump up on. And uh, in that case, try and get his name out there he's not like the governor of michigan who um is trying to use this to jump at the president or do anything to kind of embarrass the president he's been very he's been kind of like cuomo and i would say he's actually been a little bit better than cuomo in that sense because he hasn't really come out and said anything bad about president trump and because of that uh california's been doing relatively well and we're going to get to the paradox of why california is doing really well is it because of the social distancing? Is it because Gavin Newsom took such aggressive action? Or is it because of some other things? Uh, it's a big article. I, I broke it down for you. Again, I'm going to put it up in the show notes so you can read the whole article. It's a really, really long article. And even when I chopped it down, took the highlights, it's still a pretty long article. But it's a very interesting article uh, nonetheless. But the first article I want to talk about is headline, California dismantled its mobile hospital system ventilator respirator stockpiles in 2011. And this is a story that's been going around because people are starting to say the federal government hasn't really responded to uh, what their requires or their cries for help are or what they need. And since they've been saying that 
they need more of this stuff or make more of that and they weren't prepared and they're trying to say the federal government wasn't prepared but a lot of the states are starting to come out and as more news and more people investigative journalists or at least independent journalists i should say are starting to figure out what's going on here they start to find out that maybe the states weren't as prepared either and maybe they should be facing some of the brunt and this is not to say that anybody has done a spectacular a plus bang up 100 percent knocked it out of the park job when it comes to uh the response to this this pandemic i'm not going to sit here and say the federal government was 100 percent ready i'm not going to say the states were 100 percent ready no one was 100 percent ready which is why i think in the t- in the terms of if you're in a glass house don't throw stones because right now a lot of states are showing that they weren't particularly ready as well um, so this came from redstate.com. Uh, again, California dismantled its mobile hospital system, ventilator, respirator, stockpiles. Uh, as Jeff Charles reported, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti predicts that the city of Angels is less than a week away from reaching New York City levels of Wuhan coronavirus cases. Such a major increase, nearly doubling every two days, would overwhelm the city's healthcare capacity, Garcetti said. Uh, mind you, this was also written uh, March 29th, so it's a little older. Uh, we've probably almost hit that week mark, and we we don't really have the numbers yet from L.A. Um, Eric Garcetti says, we will be where they are, he told reporters on Friday. We'll have doctors making excruciating decisions. We'll be trying to figure out what we what to what we do with that surge, how to get final layers, and where to find beds. If Garcetti had access to three mobile 200-bed hospitals with IC units and surgical suites, 50 million N95 respirators, 2,400 portable ventilators, and kits to set up 21,000 additional patient beds wherever they were needed, he would probably feel a bit more prepared to handle the predicted onslaught. Uh, California had such a system implemented by former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2006. Schwarzenegger was troubled by the suffering he saw along the Gulf Coast after Katrina and was concerned about a possible bird flu pandemic, knowing that devastating earthquakes and, quote, wanted to prepare the state for future calamities. Dr. Carlos Ariste Guetta, I think I said that right, I probably butchered it who served as Schwarzenegger's emergency medical director from 05 to 07, described the 200-bed hospitals. They are not like mash tent on TV. They are fully insulated, HVAC-equipped, semi-permanent tents. They had ventilators, a full complement of medications, and they would roll out on 18-wheelers with a highway patrol escort. They had sleeping quarters for the staff. They were really comprehensive. During the 2008 recession, state revenues plummeted and the state faced a $26 billion budget deficit by the time Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger left office. Governor uh, Jerry Brown cut the system in 2011 sarcastically, I think sarcastically is the important part here, remarking that, quote, the programs have been set up to counter a, quote, potential influenza pandemic, which did not occur. Insert foot in mouth right now. As California recovered from the recession, the state again had budget surplus, $2.8 billion in 2016 and $9 billion surplus in 2018. When Gavin Newsom was elected, the state collected a $21 billion surplus in 2019. But despite seeing massive swaths of the state devastated by wildfires, the state didn't prioritize replacing equipment, supplies that had been used, given away, let expire in the meantime. Uh, article goes on to say the 2,400 portable battery-powered ventilators were donated to a county health departments and local hospitals. Medical device dealers told the Los Angeles Times they recall as many California ventilators being resold by hospitals and nursing homes to other dealers 
who then likely shipped them out of the United States. Out of the 50 million N95 respirator masks, 21 million remain, but they're all out of date. Between 2011 and 2020, masks were not were used, but not replaced. The expired masks have been released from the stockpile, but are, quote, approved for use only in limited, low-risk circumstances, according to the California Department of Health. Uh, as of March 2020, California has 90,000 hospital beds statewide. The ability to add 21,000 mobile beds to that supply would be invaluable in the current situation. By 2011, when the system was disbanded, uh, the maintenance cost for the entire program was $5.8 million a year, which seems kind of small, considering that California spent $129 billion in the 2011 budget and over $200 million in 2019. In contrast, the cost to lease space for 177 hospital beds in Daly City will cost the state $3.2 million. It was extremely short-sighted for Jerry Brown to eliminate a program with a minimal maintenance cost. A number of Democrats criticized the move at the time, but he wanted to stick a finger on Schwarzenegger's eye, and now all Californians are going to pay the price. So, yeah, this is a little bit of a black mark, um, specifically on the California government being ill-prepared. Even if you can say that the social distancing has worked, uh, I bet you California would feel a lot better knowing that they had these mobile hospitals set in place. And I have to give Schwarzenegger a lot of credit. This is good foresight on his part to say disasters like this happen and they happen when we least expect it so jerry brown or governor moonbeam saying well it never came so i guess we don't need to have these things anymore is kind of ill sight uh, has bad foresight and really just just bad predicting skills of saying if just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's not going to happen and as we've seen this does happen on a regular cyclical basis in the sense that we have the SARS, we've had swine flu, we've had avian flu, uh, we had the Ebola crisis. Um, this comes around every couple of years or so. So to say just because it didn't happen doesn't mean that it will never happen. And this is part of a bigger trend also going on in New York, where you have Andrew Cuomo who is saying that they need more ventilators, yet they were sitting on a stockpile of 2,000 of them and they were confiscating them and saying, well, we need them as fast as possible. We need a ship. And I don't doubt they need a ship. New York is in really bad shape right now. But the states need to be a little bit more prepared. And if you're someone who is a more state rights person rather than a federal government type person, and this is sort of endemic of what's going on in our political system at all. It's been happening over the past couple decades that the federal government has taken more and more of a larger role as the be-all and end-all of all governing decisions. And while the states have control and power, I mean, they've been granted enormous power under our Constitution to do a lot of things, to craft their own constitutions, to govern themselves the way they want to, they still seem to think that the federal government will bail them out. And that's something that I think needs to change moving forward from this. States need to start realizing that you can't depend on the federal government to bail you out all the time. It's irresponsible. It's naive to think that they're going to do so. And it doesn't help the people of your state. 
As you're seeing with New York, California, again, has been doing a pretty good job of keeping it low. We're going to talk about the numbers in a little bit about how we've been doing a little bit better. But you can't have states, especially one like California, that likes to puff out its chest and boast that it has the biggest economy in the entire country or the biggest, you know, fifth largest or ninth largest, whatever, whatever the ranking is now to say that puff out your chest, you know, all these billions of dollars laying around as a surplus. It doesn't mean squat if it doesn't go to help the people of the state, which we're seeing right now. If the people of the state need more, if they need more hospital beds and they need more ventilators and they need these more masks, wouldn't it make it sense that we had a stockpile of these masks? Now, I would like to think that maybe I would give credit to Governor Newsom if he goes out there and he says, okay, well, based on this, we're going to be ready for the next time this comes around and we're going to create a stockpile and bring these mobile hospitals back. I'd give him credit for that, but I don't know if he will because they like to post and brag about this enormous surplus that is supposed to be used for rainy days. And I guess a rainy day, I'm not quite sure what a rainy day is in their definition. California seems to be ill-prepared for wildfires. Now it's ill-prepared for pandemics. Lord knows if we're even prepared for if there is a massive earthquake that could rock a city again. And it seems that they like to puff out their chest that they keep taking more and more of our tax dollars, putting it in a little piggy bank that they won't let anybody touch or anybody use. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Our roads are crumbling. We have record amount of homeless people. Yet they seem to like to keep boasting about how they have this enormous surplus every year. And it keeps... The point, why do you have the surplus and you keep asking for people for money? And I've talked about this before. If you have a surplus and you seem to be doing so well budget with your budget and your budgeting skills and you have this surplus, you shouldn't be asking people for more money. Obviously, you've been asking for too much money because you have more than enough socked away. And whether you're using that for the proper purposes is yet to be seen. It hasn't been seen yet. Even with the wildfires, we're not prepared. What happened when we had the wildfires? Uh, Gavin Newsom went running to President Trump, hat in hand again, uh, you know, played nice for a little bit, said the president was very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you for the FEMA help. Okay, see you later. Okay, back to bashing Trump and how horrible he is. This comes along. Now, all of a sudden, it's back to hat in hand. Go back to President Trump. Say, okay, this is horrible. This is what uh, we need your help. And we're going to work together. As soon as this is over, I don't doubt Gavin Newsom will go back to bashing Trump, saying how horrible he is, what a racist, misogynist, racist, you know, just all the different things. So with that said, uh, this is definitely, I think the governor is focusing on other things rather than really what's at hand here. And a lot of people are who saw what happened with the CARES Act and the Relief Act and saw what Nancy Pelosi did trying to shove in different funding for the biggest one was $25 million for the Kennedy Center, which people really didn't understand why the Kennedy Center needed $25 million. Once they, even after they fired all their people, they got the money and then fired all their musicians. So it wasn't to help keep the Kennedy Center going. Who knows what the $25 million went to? Obviously, it wasn't to keep people on staff. But I guess... Gavin Newsom, who's related to Nancy Pelosi, the apple doesn't fall far from the family tree, also believes that these opportunities, this opportunity, and I want to, we're going to talk about this a little bit, 
is a good opportunity to start ushering a progressive era because as you're seeing people when they are scared will do anything and they will comply with anything to get back to a sense of normalcy and security and what that means is if the government says well you have to do x y and z okay okay we'll do this we'll do this okay yeah we agree and this is how you start to change society little by little and you get to change the the perception of what society is so in the california globe uh it was noted that the governor said when asked uh if there's a political opportunity out of this pandemic he is quote saying there is an opportunity for reimagining a more progressive era as it relates to capitalism governor newsom said so yes, we absolutely see this as an opportunity to reshape the way we do business and how we govern. Pretty scary because this shouldn't be the time to start thinking about how you're going to reshape uh, society out of a pandemic. I can understand because of capitalism, people are going to start looking at the way things are done and people will step back and say, okay, maybe we can't have our business uh, entirely brick and mortar. Maybe we need to start learning how to use virtual platforms. And I understand, I think that's a good way for capitalism to start figuring that out. This isn't the best way to do it, putting millions of people out of jobs, but I think the economy figures it out on its own. I don't think this is a time for politicians to start ramrodding their entire progressive politics and their agendas through, which is what Pelosi's doing, which is now what we're going to see Gavin Newsom doing. And I want you to Google this when you get a chance. And I'm going to go over a little bit. It's called Cloward Piven Strategy. It's C-L-O-W-A-R-D, Cloward Piven, P-I-V-E-N. Um, talk about it right now what it is. It was first proposed in 1966 and named after Columbia University sociologist Richard Andrew Cloward and his wife, Frances Fox Piven. Both longtime members of the Democratic Socialist America were Piven today as an honorary chair. The Cloward Piven strategy seeks to hasten the fall of capitalism by overloading the government bureaucracy with a flood of impossible demands, thus pushing society into crisis and economic collapse. Inspired by the August 1965 riots in the Black District of Watts in Los Angeles, which erupted after police had used batons to subdue a black man suspected of drunk driving, Cloward and Piven published an article titled The Weight of the Poor, A Strategy to End Poverty in the May 2, 1966 issue of The Nation. Following its publication, The Nation sold an unprecedented 30,000 reprints. Activists were abuzz over the so-called crisis strategy or Cloward-Piven strategy, as it came to be called. Many were eager to put it into effect. In 1966 article, Cloward and Piven charged that the ruling classes used welfare to weaken the poor, that by providing a social safety net, the rich doused the fires of rebellion. Poor people can advance only when the rest of society is afraid of them, Cloward told the New York Times on September 27, 1970. Rather than placating the poor with government handouts, wrote Cloward and Piven, activists would, should work to sabotage and destroy the welfare system. The collapse of the welfare state would ignite a political and financial crisis that would rock the nation. Poor people would rise in revolt. Only then would the rest of society accept their demands. The key to sparking their rebellion would be to expose the inadequacy of the welfare state. Clower Piven's early promoters cited radical organizer Saul Linsky as their inspiration. Quote, make the enemy live up to their own book of rules, Alinsky wrote in his 1971 book, Rules for Radicals. 
when pressed to honor every word of law and statute, every Judeo-Christian moral tenet, and every implicit promise of the liberal social contract, human agencies inevitably fall short. The system's failure to live up to its rulebook can then be used to discredit it altogether and to replace the capitalist rulebook with a socialist one. The authors know that the number of Americans subsisting on welfare, about 8 million at that time, probably represented less than half the number who were technically eligible for full benefits. They proposed a massive drive to recruit the poor onto the welfare rolls. Cloward and Piven calculated that persuading even a fraction of potential welfare recipients to demand their entitlements would bankrupt the system. The result they predicted would be a profound and financial political crisis that would unleash powerful forces for major economic reform at the national level. Their article called for cadres of aggressive organizers to use demonstrations to create a climate of militancy. Intimidated by threats of black violence, politicians would appeal to the federal government for help. Carefully orchestrated media campaigns carried out by friendly left-wing journalists would float the idea of a federal program of income redistribution in the form of a guaranteed living income for all, working and non-working people alike. Local officials would clutch at this idea like drowning men to a lifeline. They would apply pressure on Washington to implement it. With every major city erupting into chaos, Washington would have to act. This was an example of what was commonly called Trojan horse movements, mass movements whose outward purpose seems to be providing material help to the downtrodden, but whose real objective is to draft poor people into service as a revolutionary foot soldiers, to mobilize poor people en masse to overcome, overwhelm government agencies with a flood of demands beyond the capacity of those agencies to meet. The flood of demands was calculated to break the budget jam the bureaucratic gears into gridlock and bring the system crashing down. Fear, turmoil, violence, and economic collapse would accompany such a breakdown, providing perfect conditions for fostering radical change. And that was the theory. So as you can see, it's this happened almost 40, 50 years ago. And this theory seems to be working right now, that the idea that there is a crisis going on, you're having the people start to flood the system, Almost to the point that it will be unsustainable and untenable after a certain point. We can't keep doing what we're doing. Even if you like the idea of this Corona relief package um, and you think that it's good to give people all this money, the idea is shouldn't be to continually give people more and more money. It shouldn't be the idea to continue to open up the welfare state to the point where it collapses. And a lot of it we talked about last week. In the sense of you're starting to see little tenets of socialism here and there. Do you like your idea of socialism? Because that's what it's starting to be pushed into. This idea that the federal government should be responsible for your health care and they should be responsible for your income. And it should be responsible for distributing the goods and services of other people. Determining what's essential and what's not essential. And this is a big issue. And you got to be keeping your eyes wide open on this that. If you don't think people like Nancy Pelosi or James Clyburn or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or even Gavin Newsom are going to start taking advantage of this opportunity, never let a good crisis go to waste. Keep those words in mind. Never let a good crisis go to waste. Jim Clyburn said that this is an opportunity to start building the agenda and the vision of the country that they've always wanted and can't do. Can't do because we have checks and balances, because they're not represented, because they don't have the power, because they lost elections and they don't have control of the Senate or the White House, which is how it should be in our government. It shouldn't be that you should be ramrodding or using this crisis 
to start ramrodding your political ideology through. And I'm worried that Gavin Newsom will start to do this as well here in California. That he'll, he's been pretty tame so far and he's been keeping hands off, especially when it comes to stuff like keeping gun shops open or letting people go buy guns and ammo to protect themselves. He's kind of stepped back and said, well, I'm not going to decide it. I'll let the sheriffs decide it. And even if the, uh, you know, the sheriff up in L.A. County decides he wants to close all the gun shops, even though that was quickly dismissed out of course or that was quickly shot down by the court. I should say it was shot down by the court, not dismissed by the court that you can't do that. Um, you can start to see that this is a chance that, it, that when pressed with dire numbers and fear that it will never get better, people will back into a corner and accept almost anything. And that's sort of what the, the strain of these past couple podcasts has been, is that you have to start questioning this and looking at not to say, well, I don't care and I don't think this is a big deal, but also to question whether everything you're being told is the right idea or it's the right solution to this problem. And a lot of it is statistically, is it because of, and again, this big article that I'm gonna to get to has a lot of this stuff we've been talking about, which is confounders. Is it just because of the social distancing that California has been kind of safe from this or hasn't seen the brunt of it yet or it hasn't gotten out of hand yet? I know people are starting to get, you know, San Diego County has been doing pretty well. L.A. is probably the worst hit. San Francisco jumped on it early. They were badly hit. But the rest of the, you know, the rest of the state seems to be faring pretty well. Um, but you have to start to question. Don't let this fear take over your rational thought. And don't let this become your lizard brain taking over where it's fight or flight. And it's all about survival. And people, you can see it every day. The government says, well, you need to do this to go out and su survive, to fight the virus and for the common good. What happens the next day? Everybody runs out. They all do exactly what the government says. And I'm not saying it doesn't have merit. There are things that have merits. There are things that probably are good ideas. But just look at this whole issue with masks. Two weeks ago, they said masks may have been more dangerous than actually helpful. Complete 180 two weeks later. Now masks are essential. Now you got to go out and you got to wear a mask everywhere you go. So just start to question this and keep your eye on what's going on with these politicians. Who's taking advantage of this? Who's leaning on the federal government a little bit too much? Who's not prepared? Who's pointing the finger in the wrong place? You know, point the finger at where it should be responsible. When this, when all the dust settles down, I would love to hear a reporter or someone get to Gavin Newsom and say, look, uh, are you going to bring back those mobile hospitals and all that stuff that Governor Schwarzenegger did because we have a surplus and it's obviously really not that expensive if we're doing this well and we have an enormous surplus? Are you going to bring back these mobile hospitals so that you can be better prepared the next time this comes around or another predecessor is better prepared the next time this comes around? Uh, will you will you agree to that or will you promise to do that? I doubt he would. I doubt anyone's going to ask him that, and I doubt anyone's even going to put his feet to the fire. I think he'll pat himself on the back and say we did better than most states, and we're one the the largest one of the largest states, most you know had most people. And look at us. Look at how we did. We did really well because of my decisions. Probably could have done a lot better. Probably could have been a lot more prepared. I would think states have to start to figure out, and I don't think they will, that they need to be better prepared locally. So when stuff like this happens. They can say, okay, we're better prepared. So this, when this happens again, we don't have to go beg the federal government for help. 
We don't have to be at the mercy of whoever's in the Oval Office or in the White House. But I doubt that will happen. Instead, they're going to use any avenue they can to start to push the agenda that they want while getting the federal dollars to push the agenda that they want. So be wary. Be wary of what Gavin Newsom is going to be doing after this is all done. Be wary of the power that he wields right now. He hasn't been too heavy-handed with the power he wields right now, which is good. And maybe that's just him laying the foundation that he hasn't he isn't doing anything out of the ordinary so that when he does something a little bit more extreme, people say, "Well, I mean, he's been pretty pretty conservative up up until this point. So maybe uh, you know, maybe this is just what we need to do." So keep your eye on it. See what, you know, question everything. Question what's coming out. Question the statistics. Uh, And this next article is exactly an issue on that when it comes to questioning the statistics and questioning those uh, and what we've been told. Uh, This was from, what article is this from? This is from the National Review by Victor Davis Hanson. Headline, Coronavirus, the California Herd. Uh, coronavirus pandemic california herd immunity Uh, again i'll post all the articles and i'll post the links to all these articles um hold on to your butts for this one is a little bit longer and again i try to trim this down as much as possible Um, i went through it and highlighted only what i thought was the most essential stuff The bluest state's public officials have been warning for weeks that California will be overwhelmed given federal government unpreparedness and the purported inefficacy of the local, state, and federal governments. Before I begin, I want to say that this was was posted on March 31st. The numbers are going to be a little bit different, but I'll go over that. California Governor Gavin Newsom has assured his state that over half of the population, or in his words, 56%, will soon be infected. That is, more than 25 million coronaviruses are on the horizon, which at the virus's current fatality rate of 1% to 2%, the ratio of deaths to known positive cases, would mean that the state would anticipate 250 to 500,000 dead Californians in the near future. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti predicted that this week, Los Angeles would be short of all sorts of medical supplies as the epidemic killed many hundreds, as in the case of New York City. It's been well over two months since the first certified coronavirus case in the United States, so one might expect to see early symptoms of the apocalypse recently forecast by Governor Newsom. Yet a number of Californians' top doctors, epidemiologists, statisticians, and biophysicists, including Stanford's John Ioniz, Michael Levitt, Aaron Beveni, Ben Ben David, and Jay, uh, not even going to pronounce that name, it's a long name, have expressed some skepticism about the bleak models predicting that we are on the verge of a statewide or even national lethal pandemic of biblical proportions. The skeptics may be right. As of this moment, California's cumulative fatalities attributed to the coronavirus are somewhere around, and this is that the art writing at the time is 140, it's about 300, uh, let me pull this up right now. Um, if you're not tracking, LA Times has a really good tracker right now. 323, and literally at the time of recording this, it says 323 out of 14,000 confirmed cases. Uh, so keep those numbers in mind as I go. Like I said, these numbers are a little old, but still, 14, 323 out of 14,000. 
that tolls relatively confirmable numerator, though coronavirus is not always the sole cause of death, as opposed to a widely unreliable denominator of caseloads, uh, which is currently, at the point of this recording, 14,000 in the state. They are judged to be only a fraction of the population that has been tested. The Iceland study, for example, suggests that half of those who are infected show no symptoms. Currently, even with fluctuating statistics, California is suffering roughly about one death to the virus for every 250,000 to 300,000 of its residents. In contrast, as of Monday morning, New York State, with about half of California's population, has about eight to nine times the number of deaths and 20 times per capita rate at 60 deaths per million residents. In fact, California has a much lower per capita death rate than many of the nation's largest states. For that matter, its per capita death rate is similar to that of nations that so far have mysteriously escaped the virus's model wrath. Currently, California has lost fewer than four people per million, roughly between South Korea's three deaths per million and Germany's five, which are both being studied as outliers. Of course, the statistics change hourly, but for now, California's data remains mysteries. Like I just said, this was a, couple, a little bit ago, showed you the numbers, numbers are still pretty low. Uh, even at this midpoint in the virus's ascendance, most believe that California would be faring far worse. And they have good reason for such pe pessimism. California in a normal year usually experiences the greatest number of deaths associated with the flu in the United States. And it ranks about midway among the states in flu deaths per capita. The state was hit hard by influenza unusually early in the first few weeks of November, including a strain that at the time was characterized as probably not quote, A, but a rather B, and occasion quite virulent. Many Californians complained late in 2019 of getting the flu a bit early, with flu symptoms that were somewhat different from the norm, at times including severe muscle aches, some digestive cramping, an unproductive cough, uh, and days or even weeks of post-fever fatigue. Travel forecasts from China for 2020, even amid the trade war, had estimated more than 8,000 daily arrivals in California. Two years ago, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti bragged that 1.1 million Chinese tourists had visited L.A., more than 3,000 per day. The greatest number of foreign tourists to Los Angeles are Chinese, and the city is the favorite spot in America of all visitors from China. During the months of October, November, January, and February alone, before the travel ban, perhaps nearly 1 million Chinese citizens arrived in California on direct and indirect flights originating in China. Going down. Uh, in the case of California, again, unfortunately, the state should have had many things going against it, at least in terms of susceptibility to any pandemic infection that curbs its huge tourist and commercial travel with China. The state has the nation's highest poverty rate, affecting over 20% of the population, or some 8 million people. The greatest number of homeless people at somewhere over 150,000 and the most residents in the nation on some form of public assistance, one-third of the nation's total. The state is not especially healthy and rarely rates among the top 10 states in terms of per capita health by whichever metrics one uses. A decade ago, studies suggested that one in three admissions of those over 35 to California hospitals were suffering from either diabetes or pre-diabetes, a known risk factor for coronavirus patients. California ranks near the bottom when we count the number of available hospital beds, 1,000 population, at about 1.8. Likewise, its number of active doctors per 100,000 is similarly unoppressive, about midway among state rankings at 276 per 100,000, versus Massachusetts' high of 450 and Mississippi's low of 191. In most surveys of nurses per 100,000, 
California ranks near last with only 664. How then has California in the third month of known COVID-19 infections in the U.S. lost between, uh, at this point, it's now 323 lives? Again, a number of experts have offered hypotheses. And it is a question of the statistical anomaly, as some have suggested it is the case of Germany, for which similarly posed few total deaths from the virus. Given differences in how countries and perhaps even states record the chief causation of death, i.e. some places are listing COVID-19 as the cause of death, even when the decedent suffered from underlying chronic conditions. Is California experiencing a brief lull in the fashion of Japan, which likewise has suffered few deaths so far, but may be poised to suffer far more? Is there a lag in ascertaining and determining deaths in a state that's geographically huge and linguistically diverse, a lapse that will shortly cease correcting such misimpressions from a radical increase in a corona-associated deaths, as is now forecast for Japan and to a lesser extent Germany? Did California's draconian shelter-in-place policies that antedated uh, many of those in other states simply arrest, quote, so far, what should have been by now a lethal epidemic? Did California's proverbial warmer weather slow down the virus? Did its suburban ranch homes lifestyle and large open spaces in the Central Valley, Sierra Nevada, desert, and northern counties make transmissions harder than it has been in, say, the highest density living in New York? Maybe, maybe not. One less mentioned hypothesis is that California as a frontline state may have rather rapidly developed a greater level of herd immunity than other states. Given that, hints, antidotes, and some official indications for both China and Italy that, again, the virus may well have been spreading abroad far earlier than the first recorded case in the U.S., and likely from the coast inward. So given the state's unprecedented direct air access to China and given its large expatriate uh, and tourist Chinese communities, especially in its huge or denser metropolitan corridors in Los Angeles and the Bay Area, it could be that what thousands of Californians experienced as unusually early and bad flu season might have also reflected an early coronavirus epidemic, suggested that many more Californians per capita than in other states may have acquired immunity to the virus. Huge article. Thanks for sticking with me. Uh, again, going to post it. You can read the whole thing. I'm just taking snippets out. In the meantime, for a few days at least, we are left with the California paradox. As with the apparent outliers of Germany, South Korea, and Japan, it reminds us that all oh, there are endless known unknowns about the origins, lethality, infectiousness, and patterns of travel to the coronavirus, and that today's latest frightening statistical model is often superseded tomorrow by more realistic appraisals and theories, and then again rendered naive by even more frightening new backlash models. Until now, without either widespread antibody or current infection testing, the number of people who die from the virus in comparison to a given population base is about all we can rely on to determine the lethality of the disease. And in that regard, at least for a few weeks or a few weeks, a few days or weeks longer, California remains a mystery. So again, a uh, huge, huge article, a lot of good thoughts in there. Numbers are a little off because it's been a week old, but again, even at 140, 150 with an increase to 323 over that time, pan, uh, time span, still not really that bad when you think about it. And looking at the LA Times, looking at the statistical numbers, it isn't rising as fast as, let's say, New York, where they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people dying uh, every single day. It seems to be maybe in the double digits every night that it gets updated. Um but this is part of the larger issue that I think I wanted to, I've been pushing these past couple of weeks is that you have to question what's going on and you can't just sit here in a bubble 
and be spoon-fed what everybody is telling you. And it's not unpatriotic. I think it's more patriotic and more American to question what's going on out there. It's in our DNA to question what's going on out there when it comes to this coronavirus. I think you can say, are there different solutions? Um, and to a certain extent, like the president said, you can't have the cure be worse than the problem. Do we have to start figuring out ways to move forward? And I think I hear a lot of people already parroting this idea of this is the new norm and this is the new reality and we're all going to be stuck inside for a very, very long time. And I don't buy any of it. I don't buy that the American people are going to sit here and be dormant and stay inside their homes for months on end. I feel by the time we get to the end of April, I think there'll be a lot more pushback for people clamoring and clawing up the walls to get back out at work and even asking someone to say well if you were allowed to go back to work if things were allowed to go back to somewhat normal if let's say they put in okay just make sure you do social distancing make sure the restaurants can do this or that or if there was some little bit of step in the right direction and i'm not saying in a rational well let's just rip the band-aid off and everyone go hog wild because everything's fine I'm still saying that there are ways to kind of move forward in the right direction without being shouted down as if you want to kill grandma. And I think you have to continually keep asking questions. Be vigilant. Be vi This is a time that we all get caught up in the normal daily routine of our lives. We all get caught up in the everyday rushing to work, rushing home, making dinner, watching a couple things on Netflix and going to bed, doing that week in and week out. We have a lot of time on our hands. We have a lot of time on our hands to sit around and read. I think now would be a productive time and you're starting to see a lot of people, you go on social media, you go on Twitter, a lot of people are starting to question what's going on. They're questioning the models. They're questioning the statistics. They're questioning why no one's talking about cures, why they always seem to be saying, you know, even with the, the results of something like hydroxychloroquine. Even if that's really powerful and that's a treatment that can be used, even that's something that can stem the tide. Even when people like Laura Ingram are going out there and saying, well, is hydroxychloroquine a good idea? Is it really you know, turning the tide? And Twitter is saying, oh, no, nope, you got to take that down. There is a balance. There's a balance of you don't want people who are not medical professionals to start pushing things out there. But at the same time, you also want reporters and people in the news to be able to say, hey, this looks pretty promising. Maybe we should start talking about this more. And it's amazing how fast it went from hydroxychloroquine was this great drug that was working really well and the minute president trump said something about it everybody had to all of a sudden go oh no we're gonna ban it uh it's no good uh look at this person who drank fishbowl cleaner and he died from it uh forget the, we'll just leave out the fact that he drank fishbowl cleaner which is not exactly the same chemical compound uh let's just push hydroxychloroquine to the back because the president touted it and now people are saying he touted a, a false hope for a drug if you look at the statistics, it's not false hope. It seems to be working. And that's where people are starting to get really frustrated. And I'm saying that you have to question everything. You have a lot of time on your hands. You have a lot of time to read articles and figure this stuff out for yourself. And there's not much we can do in terms of what everyone else is doing. People are going to listen to the government. They're going to listen to what the news is telling them. And they're going to do exactly what they need to do because they're, they're scared. And likewise, you know, for good reason, a lot of people are scared out there. It doesn't mean you have to continually be scared and think that we have to just blindly accept everything that's being told to us. Be precautious, obviously. Be precautious, be safe, be healthy, 
but also question what's going on. And I believe that we've lost that kind of discourse going on in this country. I feel like if you try and bring it up, if you even try to bring up, maybe there's ways to get around this and fix it and kind of move in the right direction and getting the economy back open, getting people back to work, making it so we don't have to continually live on government handouts for the next couple months. People shout you down. People shout you down because even if you mindly just suggest, oh, I just want to suggest that we could maybe move towards uh, bringing everything back and maybe slowly letting the economy open up so people could get their jobs back and we can return to some form of normalcy. People shout you down for wanting to, to kill people at a reckless pace. But I, I'm going to say that the people who are going to step up and question this, we need all those people. We need all those people right now to step up and question what's going on. We need all the people to step up and say, I don't believe that a lot of these statistics are right. I think there's something going on here. Hold your politicians' feet to the fire. Don't accept everything. Don't accept everything in blind fear uh, or, or blindly out of fear because you're afraid that you, if you don't do exactly what they tell you, everything, you're going to ruin everything. So with that, this one went on a little bit long because there was a lot of stuff to get through. That article was really, really long. But the moral of this is, is that you got to step back and you got to say, what is really going on here? And you can't be afraid. Don't be afraid to question it. And people are going to shout you down and people are going to say hyperbolic things like you want to kill everybody or you want to kill grandma and grandpa. That's not what you want. You want answers. You want the truth. You want to hold the politicians feet to the fire. You want to hold the people who are are kind of pushing out bad models. And we've seen there's been bad models. There's been bad statistics. There's been bad reporting. There's been people reporting the fake things. You've been you've seen news networks that have put out fake footage to try and scare people. So don't don't back down just because people shout you down. Question, question, question. Continue to ask questions. Keep your eye on the ball um, and just keep looking at the optimistic news that's out there. With that said, uh, I'm going to end this one because it did run over a little bit, trying to keep these a little bit shorter to maybe, uh, you know, 30 to 40 minutes for easier digestion. But um, keeping on that early that that weekly schedule uh, with that said, uh if you want to follow us on social media, Instagram, you can follow California Underground. Uh, you want to have any questions, you want to email into the show, stuff you want to bring up, go to CaliforniaUnderground at ProtonMail.com. If you want to call into the show, it's kind of like a call into the show. It's at anchor, uh, anchor.fm slash California Underground. You can leave a voice message. It can be played on the show like as if you're calling in. Uh, you want to leave a voice message. Um, also follow us on Twitter. California Underground, same thing. All that California Instagram, Twitter, anchor.fm slash California Underground. Um, and with that said, everyone stay safe, stay healthy, stay inside for now, but keep questioning, keep educating yourself, and uh, see you in the next one. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 